a Podcast One production. This episode of the Next Billion Seconds User's Guide to the Future was produced in partnership with GIO. Unemployment rate has climbed to its highest level in nearly 22 years, with one million people out of work. The jobless rate has risen to 7.5% in July. That was before Victoria's second lockdown. If we've learned anything from 2020, it's that we need to be prepared. We can never know what tomorrow will bring, but we can prepare. We weren't prepared for a pandemic. And because of that, We're all learning just how much change we're prepared to absorb. We've changed how we work. Some of us have had to change what we do for work. Entire sectors of the economy, like air travel and tourism, they've disappeared. So what will we be doing for work and how will we be doing it? I'm Mark Pesci and on this episode of the Next Billion Seconds User's Guide to the Future, we're looking at the future of work. Amidst all this change, work has changed most of all. But don't take it from me. Here's friend and fellow futurist Sally Dominguez. I think that the current distance learning and the current social distancing is the antithesis of long-term resilience because people cannot survive for any length of time without human contact. And you're seeing it all over the world. You're seeing depression levels rise. You're seeing productivity go down. Companies that went, oh, this is great. We're going to shut down our office and you can all work remotely. Perhaps that looked like it was going to work for two months. But it is not. It is the human condition that we want to see each other and we want to connect. And so clearly across every vertical in the world, in every area of business, we're going to see hybrid solutions. We're going to see people understand the revaluation of the touch points of human connection and then everything else can go digital. You know, tons of stuff can be hands off. Tons of stuff doesn't require travel. But, you know, I know for what I do. If I'm in a room with people, I can make them think differently and I can energise them. When I'm online with people, I can have that effect, but it is not of the scale of impact that I can have in a room. For people who can work from home, and that is far from everyone, we need to keep that front of mind. But for those folks, work changed suddenly and completely. Instead of being in a crowded office filled with voices and ideas and interruptions and distractions, it became a laptop on a kitchen table or perhaps propped on the corner of a bed. It was different. It was a bit exotic for the first week or two. And then, well, it all became just the same day after day after day. And there's a word for that. Blur's Day. All the days just becoming one long gray stretch of time. Because living life online, in Zoom or Teams or whatever your company uses to stay connected, that's not satisfying enough for most people most of the time. Some of us need to go back into the office to be around people. Others, others seem perfectly content right where they are. So to sort all of this out, we turn to Dominic Price, the work futurist at Australian tech giant Atlassian. 
before we get into exactly what he's seeing in the future of work, we asked Dom to explain exactly what a work futurist does. There's three parts to being a work futurist. One is looking at meta-level trends and understanding how the future of work is different from today. Second one is saying, where are we today? Let's be deadly honest and draw a line in the sand, where are we today? Because there's no amount of dreaming about the future makes it attainable, right? And the reality of most organizations in Australia on the ASX, in the US on the NASDAQ, they are traditional 150-year-old organizations carrying a huge amount of heritage. So how do you acknowledge where you are today and what's that shift? And then the third part is, how do we do that first? A work futurist asks hard questions about what work is actually for and what workers actually do. And all of that has changed radically during the pandemic. COVID is not a phase. It's a new world that we're in. And so whilst we've poured accelerant on stuff, I think it's on us to go, well, those changes were happening anyway. How can we understand them? And what are the things we can do? So that the great news about it is it's a great leveler for us all to go, okay, all of the stuff just changed. We had no choice. It wasn't a decision we made. It just happened. Given that it has happened, how do we thrive in that environment? Versus every other change in the last 60 years of revolutions, it's been a choice. This one isn't. It's forced upon us. And so I think you're seeing a different rate of urgency. You're seeing a different propensity to go, this is kind of a blank piece of paper. Maybe, maybe I can start again. Maybe I can redefine my identity, my career, how I think about the balance of family and life and work. Maybe I can do all those things. If you look at those billion knowledge workers, the reality is there is literally zero correlation between line of sight of a knowledge worker and the thing that they do, right? Except we created office spaces that up until sort of March this year looked like production lines, just with desks and laptops and people that looked a bit sad going in and out of meetings because you've completely killed their mojo. And, 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 and we've recreated the production line, but with knowledge workers. So you're like, cool, does nine to five need to exist for knowledge workers? No. Does Monday to Friday need to exist? No. Is there a correlation between line of sight and their work? No, none of these things are true, but those constructs have stayed. So this gives us an opportunity to go, okay, billion knowledge workers. If the majority of their tasks can be done asynchronously, and there's no correlation between the desk and the job to be done, why would we correlate them? Why, why would we make them occur at a certain time frame? Why wouldn't we give them the flexibility back? Forget the time clock, Dom is saying. Forget the schedule, forget peak hours, forget all of it. It's all over, killed by COVID. And that's not necessarily bad news. And so there's huge upside to thinking about that about how you realize that work isn't this activity where you have to clock in and clock out. And it's a way of creating value and creating outcomes. And, and it doesn't matter how long it takes. Completely reframes how you think about work. But it also challenges one of our most favorite constructs, which is the hierarchy and the chain of command and power structures. Now, I'm fortunate that the best leaders I've worked with, both in Atlassian and before, were ones that cared about people. And they, they actually achieved their outcome through influence. And the worst people I work with are the ones who were managers and they managed the process and they did it through control, right? There is nothing motivating about control. So we, we know what leadership looks like and we know that this new future we can create is a way more engaging future where people thrive and leaders thrive. It's just going to take a lot of unlearning of old habits and rituals and then giving ourselves the space, the time and the freedom to learn new ones, which we've not really had to do before. These old habits, they are baked into nearly every office environment in nearly every business around the world. They're standard operating procedure. And 
for many of the knowledge workers that Dom refers to. Now, knowledge workers, those are the folks who basically are sitting typing at keyboards all the day long, moving information around. For those folks, these rules, these schedules, they no longer make much sense. It's just a hangover from the time when we all worked in factories. They don't really have anything to do with the nature of modern work. And that's the real shocker here, because we've suddenly become aware of how much of what we believed to be true about work was only true because we believed it. We realize that measures such as productivity, uh, which is a, a very popular discussion topic, certainly right now in COVID times, uh, on a regular basis on LinkedIn, on the news, it's like X percent of people say they're more productive. I'm like, cool. What does that mean? Because the OECD measure of productivity is input process output. It's from a, an industrial revolution that I wasn't even alive for, let alone care about. And, and if you look at knowledge workers and you look at the world we're in today and creativity, curiosity, the planet, the impact we want to have, the rate of change, we should be rewarded for our learning velocity. We should be rewarded for our nimbleness and adaptability and for how we balance how we care for the planet and climate and people and purpose and profits right? and productivity, not just productivity. And so that reframe says, well, what does it mean to be an effective team? Like if the science tells us that individuals struggle to be innovative together, alone, because they, they think like the same way themselves, you can't, you can't actually have opposing views in your head that easily. So you go, cool, cognitively diverse teams, more innovative, awesome, create better curiosity, better value, brilliant, represent their customer base more, Conway's law, brilliant, I like that. So you're like, oh, it all makes sense. You're like, problem with their cognitively diverse teams? They're a real pain to manage. So there are at least two transformations underway in work. The first is that we're seeing the death of an industrial mindset that workers clock in, produce, and clock out. The second is that creativity has its foundations in diversity. And managing diversity isn't easy. Because, you know, if you, if you get seven like-minded people, it's a breeze. But you get seven people with different views, that feels like a tax. Now, it's actually an investment, but it takes this reframe for us to say, well, what does it mean to be an effective team? What does diversity give us? And, and how much should I spend on inclusion? You know, I, I often say to people, if you're going to spend a dollar on, on diversity, save two for inclusion. If you're not going to save the two for inclusion, don't bother spending the one on diversity because you don't get any benefit. Like, you actually have a choice. Don't do it. Just go and hire a whole lot of like-minded people. It'll be quick and it'll be cheap and it'll be brutally ineffective. You'll get somewhere really fast and it won't be where you want to go. But if you are going to hire for diversity and then build a place of inclusion, that's a huge investment. Like It's not easy. It's very complex. And so how can we make teamwork and effective teams? And by that, I mean team cohesion, a sense of belonging, a sense of impact, having clear goals, right? having a, a sense of achievement as you achieve your mission. None of these things are rocket science. None of them require technology. They just require us to go back to being human, something that sadly got trained out of us at some point. And when you tap into that, suddenly work isn't this, I work and then I'm at home. Work is just an integral part of life. Suddenly it's less about the task and more about the impact. You're a lot more intrinsically motivated. You're, you course correct a lot more. You're aware of your environment. You deliver better value and you actually do it in less time. So we've actually looped back to increased productivity via diversity. If you can make the diversity happen. Diversity and inclusion. Talked about a huge amount. Um, lots of posters. Very little action. Diversity and inclusion. What is it? In simple forms, diversity is the invite to the party. Inclusion is the permission to dance. So diversity is saying, I want to access a, 
a rich tapestry of talent pool, people of different backgrounds and experience. Inclusion is saying, I give you enough psychological safety where if you feel like you can be your true, authentic self. In a moment, we'll take a closer look at that authentic self and learn a simple technique that can help you get closer to what you really want to be doing. Welcome back to the Next Billion Seconds User's Guide to the Future, where we're looking into the future of work in a world where the pandemic has trashed a lot of assumptions about business practices that we never even thought to question a year ago. For the billion or so knowledge workers, this is particularly true. Now, Atlassian's work futurist Dom Price is calling time on business as usual. But what about folks who feel stuck inside of an organization that seems to be going nowhere? Well, to answer that, Dom shared a story from his own career. Two years ago, I had a moment hanging out with a friend, very fortunate friend of mine in New York. She's a great mentor of mine. And I was having a good old-fashioned English whinge about the things that I didn't like in my role, the people I was working with, everything that wasn't going well. Obviously, everyone else's fault. I was fine. It just required everyone else to just pony up to my way of working. And she's like, Dom, here's a Pinot Noir. Let's have a chat. And we had the chat, right? And she has ability to cut through BS like no one else I've ever met. And, and we did this exercise together called the four L's. And she's like, right, uh, look at yourself as a leader in the last 90 days. What did you love? Not like, what did you love about yourself? And I'm like, oh, that's really uncomfortable. I don't love anything about myself. Well, there's too many things to list. But I'm like, it just feels uncomfortable. And she's like, pick one thing. What's the thing that you did as a leader that you loved? So write that down. She's like, right, it's probably your superpower. Why are you being so humble about it? Why are you being so shy about it? Like, own it. That's the thing that you're really good at and it's valuable. Do more of it. I was like, yeah, okay. As someone with one foot in Australia and another across the Pacific in America, I know that Americans, by and large, can tell you what they love about who they are, while Australians are a lot more afraid to own that. Modesty is part of being Australian. That's no bad thing until it gets in your way. And if you're thinking, well, I'm not a leader, so this doesn't apply to me, think again. Everyone is looking to you all the time. We are all always leading. Sure, at times the leadership is formal. The rest of the time, we're leading by our actions. And we need to listen to ourselves. She's like, right, the next two L's. What did you loathe about yourself? Very uncomfortable. And what did you long for? Now, the loathe was quite easy because there was a few things that had been chipping away at me. But the longed for was interesting because when I thought about it, it had been on my list for ages. Right, we all have these things that we long to do. We just never get around to them because we don't give ourselves the space, the time, or the freedom. And she's like, right, you will never add in the longed for until you remove the loathed. Take out before you add in because you are full. Cognitively, you are full. You have no space, no capacity for more. Stop sprinkling in. Remove before you add in because then you're going to free time, right? And you need that time. There is an ancient Zen story where the master talks about the student's need to empty the teacup because you can't pour new learning into a teacup that's already full. And that's what Dom is asking us to do here. In order to move toward what we love, we have to let go of what we loathe. It sounds easy, but it rarely is. We get stuck on the things that grind our gears precisely because they make us upset. So we get attached to them rather than just letting them go. Freeing up space inside for something that we long for. And then she's like, the fourth L is, what did you learn? 
what, in the last 90 days, what's the thing you experimented on yourself that you've learned? And that's the gift that keeps on giving. Go and share with as many of your peers as possible. Always be learning. That's my mantra. And what you've learned, well, share it, just as Dami is here. But sharing what you've learned is always easier than putting what you've learned into practice. Now, the thing she didn't tell me, which I'm glad she didn't because I wouldn't have done it, was the first time you had in a longed for, you're terrible at it. Because you've not done it before, you don't have that muscle. And this is the hard thing, and it's not, it's not leader by title, it's leader by mindset. It's saying, I need to constantly add and grow new muscles. But the first time you do anything new, you're going to be terrible at it. Which is why as leaders, we inadvertently become more conservative by just doing more of the same thing that's comfortable. Right? You have to be willing to give yourself the permission not to fail continuously, but to practice and get better at something. Because we know the skills of the future will be different than the skills of the past. We're going to be spending a lot more time learning than we have. Learning is the way we will stay ahead of the rise of the robots. So I look at World Economic Forum. Every couple of years, future skills. Huge amounts of research, way more research than I could ever do. And they're like, these are the skills in decline. These are the skills on the increase. Whether they be right or wrong or in the right order doesn't matter. It gives you a real data point and a sense of the direction. And so you look at things, and when I look down that list, the number one word that jumps out to me is human. Those skills are about communication and collaboration, complex problem solving, curiosity, creativity. I'm like, this is brilliant. No robot's going to take that in the near future. So here it is. We need to double down on being human and start managing our careers as if we were each the CEOs of our own one-person companies. The interesting exercise with being your own CEO is I don't just recommend it for people in the gig economy. I recommend it for anyone. If you're like, you know what, I, I'm a business and I have skills and I have value that I bring and those skills and value need to be relevant and I need to evolve them and I have customers that buy them, it's just my customers, my employer, right? Then it's the exact same thing. What's my brand? What do I stand for? What are my values? Uh, what, what would it take for me to leave? Um, how do I deliver value and evolve that value? They're all good things that a CEO would do. What's my strategy for evolution? I think every leader, and again, not leader by title, but leader by mindset should be doing, regardless of whether they're a full-time employee on the payroll or whether they're in the gig economy. So we need to be our own CEOs so we can develop our 4L skills and set our careers on a path that keeps us ahead of the curve, even as all of the world gets smarter and smarter and smarter. And to do that, we are going to need epic levels of resilience. And that's what futurist Sally Dominguez has been focusing on. This epic resilience, which is this concept of um, quadrants that define us. So epic stands for emotional, physical, intellectual and creative. They're all kind of synergistic, you know, they're all working off each other. But the idea is that if you first, uh, a bit like when you're on the aircraft and it's going down, they say grab the oxygen mask for yourself first and then help others. The idea of epic resilience is begin with self-awareness. Begin by balancing those aspects. So emotionally, you need to have values and boundaries that are secure and then you can start connecting. Physically, you need to be at your peak, you know, nutrition, sleep-wise, physically fit so that you can deal with the stress of everyday change. And I think we're seeing that with everyone through quarantine and COVID-19, the toll it's taking on us to be constantly agile and constantly ready for something that still isn't happening. 
So you need to be physically like really optimised. And then you want to be intellectually curious, you know, so our curiosity is, is really kind of deadened by the ability to Google anything. Um, and so to be aware of that and then to really specifically focus on questioning, learning and listening would be the intellectual and constantly learning. And then the creative kind of ties it all together because so many people think creativity is somehow related to artistry. But you and I know when we're talking about creative thinking, what we're talking about is being super open to, to understanding that you don't know much at all, but that you're super excited and open to learning and taking in new stuff and taking risks and trying new things. So Epic Resilience is about this self-awareness, this self-development in those quadrants. And then once you have that, you're in this perfect position to spread optimism to other people as a base, as a base thing but then to also help other people get their stuff in order. It, it's the synergy between emotional fitness and mental fitness and physical fitness and in all those aspects that I'm trying to tap with this epic resilience strategy. Because holistically, if you tackle your boundaries, how to connect with people, how to really st structure, I've got all these tools around how you can better yourself. If you don't like reaching out to people, if you're introverted and you're like, I hate talking to new people, there are structures and tools that can make it a lot easier, that can bring it into a habit. Once it becomes a habit and you get it happening, you understand the benefits it brings you and it brings other people to really reach out and connect. So all of that like sits in with physical fitness, mental fitness, nutrition. The whole key to resilience is you want to optimize your human potential. You want to be at the top of your game. And right to be at the top of your game in a thinking sense, in terms of creativity and intellectual activity, you actually have to be emotionally and physically fit or you're worn out within a week. When the pandemic came to Australia and we all locked down, I saw my own business as a public speaker evaporate overnight. No public events. Not then and really not even now. And not for the foreseeable future. Now, I could have thrown in the towel and just said, that's it, I'm unemployed. Instead, on a bit of a whim, I started making daily videos. Each day I filmed the next hundred seconds and just spoke directly to the camera about whatever I felt was important, whether that was mass testing to control the pandemic or the economics of guaranteed annual income or what the post-COVID world might look like. I found a topic every day to talk about. Now, the first of these videos, it looks really raw. And my friends chimed in with a few suggestions on how to make that video look better. And I took their advice and I added some good lighting and a green screen. I even bought a nice camera. And across the 75 of these videos, all of them recorded during lockdown, I learned and got better with every one. And by early June, amazingly, I had a speaking gig, but this one wasn't going to be in person. It was going to happen over Zoom. And because I'd spent 75 days making videos, well, I knew exactly how to give a talk over Zoom that looked spectacular. I had my green screen, I had my video software at the ready, and I could position myself in front of my slides as I gave my talk. Now, that first talk, it didn't go perfectly, but it went well enough. And in the months since then, I've gotten better. I've gotten a lot better because I've adapted and I've learned and I've tried to apply everything I've learned to my work. So I've reinvented myself a bit. I'm still a public speaker, but now I can speak to any group, 
anywhere in the world and give them a performance that looks and feels professional. I've lifted my game because I had to. And because I could take the time to fail, to learn, to improve. Dom Price makes a big point about this. The actual superpower we need is the application of knowledge, not the consumption of knowledge. Knowledge is free, it's ubiquitous. The internet got invented years ago and Wikipedia share all the things. So you don't need to acquire knowledge. Knowledge isn't power, right? Knowledge, knowledge is this thing that's making us obese. And actually our superpower now is how can I apply that knowledge and, and actually practice it? I applied what I learned and now I have a different business, a global market. And that means I have to put on my CEO hat and think carefully about how to realize my potential in this new business. In a world where business as usual will never be business as it was pre-COVID, we all need to embrace the reality of change, then make the very best of it. And that's the final chapter in our user's guide to the future. Now for a few personal thoughts. When GIO asked me to create this series, they looked to me and I said, after the year we've all had, what we all really need is a bit of empowerment. So we feel like we can do something about the future before it gets here. That's the whole reason for this user's guide to the future. We're pointing to the risks we know about, learning what we can do about them, and sharing all of that with you. It's my earnest hope that you can turn this knowledge into actions that make the future a bit less surprising, whether it's making your home more resilient to flood or heat or bushfire, whether you're thinking of traveling by air or wondering how to keep your homes and possessions more secure, or thinking whatever you might be doing next in your career. You've got the knowledge, and knowledge is power. All this talk about the future of work and the 4Ls and epic resilience has probably raised some questions. And if so, we'd like to hear from you. Drop by our website at nextbillionseconds.com or leave us a message on LinkedIn. We will do our best to answer them. Big thanks to Dominic Price and Sally Dominguez for coming on to our show. The Next Billion Seconds User's Guide to the Future was written and presented by Mark Pesci, created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia in partnership with GIO. Producer Alex Mitchell and sound production by Darcy Thompson. For more episodes, go to podcastoneaustralia.com.au, download the Podcast One Australia app, or search the next billion seconds. This is Mark Pesci, thanking you for listening.